Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the Gospel of Mark. So wonderful to have Brady back with the beautiful accompaniment of Diana and Sean leading us in worship this morning. I wanted to take a quick moment for a special announcement as well. Sunday, March 10th, two Sundays from now, we're going to be joined by Dr. Don Whitney from Southern Seminary. That name might sound familiar to many of you if you own the book Praying the Scriptures, that small yellow book that we've had previously available to give out back in the foyer. Don Whitney is the author of that book and many other wonderful works as well. Having studied briefly under him at Southern Seminary, he is truly a treasure to the body of Christ. He's an eminent scholar and author with the heart of a pastor and a preacher. So we are very blessed to be hosting him here March 10th. Be sure to mark your candle calendars for that special guest. Amen? Amen. Well, last week we were introduced to an incredible man, weren't we? A man that many had thought was just a footnote in Scripture, but in fact was someone who, by the sovereignty of God, was thrust into a starring role in the greatest story ever told. We met the man, Simon of Cyrene. A man who had come from what is now modern-day Libya to Jerusalem for Passover, having no idea that his life was about to change. He was about to come face-to-face with perfection being slain, as he would be the first one to quite literally pick up his cross and follow behind Jesus. Despite Jesus having used that language, that phraseology, repeatedly through his ministry time, it made little sense until that moment. Take up your cross and follow me. That was what John's gospel would refer to as a hard saying, right? Later proclaiming that these things his disciples didn't understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. To have a literal embodiment of both this physical and spiritual command to all generations of Christians was Well, not only prophetic, but it explodes our hearts with encouragement as we watched what the Lord did through Simon's encounter with the Lord that day, having taken up the cross of Christ. No doubt Simon took that patabulum, that horizontal crossbeam of that Roman instrument of execution all the way up the hill of Golgotha that day. And there's no way that Simon would have left such a scene. Knowing what the Lord was doing in his heart, therefore, no doubt that he stood there. And he watched as Jesus cried out with his last breath, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. As the earth quaked and it was cloaked in darkness, even as the rocks were split and tombs were opened, the curtain of the temple torn in two, even with one of the soldiers who may have driven the very spikes into Jesus' wrist, proclaiming at that sight, Surely this was the Son of God. Well, Simon of Cyrene, he was changed, wasn't he? And as we dug and kept digging, as we watched, Scripture revealed treasures for us about Simon and his sons, with Paul later commending them in Romans as choice men unto the Lord. And Simon's wife even receiving honorable mention in that same epistle. These were remarkable people. Simon of Cyrene, as as a result of having this encounter with Christ, he brought that testimony. And we beheld not just through church tradition or through historians or early church fathers, but through Scripture. 
what mighty works the Lord did in that family. Indeed, it shows us what so often happens when Christ gets a hold of the dad in a family. It flows downward and onward as Christ consumes a family. And so he does. And even as we bask in the incredible outflow of Simon's life, flowing even onto his wife and his children, we were reminded that even Simon was but a moon brought into the divine orbit of the sun, brought in to reflect his glory, the glory of Christ, to a dark world. And still, even today, we are able to bask in that radiant light reflecting off a man that I can't wait to meet someday. I pray we will not soon forget Simon of Cyrene from last week. No longer just a footnote in Scripture. Well, today we journey toward our redemption, only made possible by the perfect sacrifice of Christ that will be put on glorious and yet graphic display for all to see. And through the ugliness that we will gaze upon today, our hearts and our eyes are going to be drawn toward the ugliness of sin, the high cost of sin, a problem so great that the only solution was nailing the Son of God to a Roman cross. As we will behold the actual crucifixion of Christ today, and over the next few weeks we will look at the events that transpire upon that cross and the actual event of de- and death of Christ a few hours later upon that cross. If I could share just two observations with the flock before we begin such a journey. One is that no preacher who's ever labored in the slightest to comprehend this divine act ever feels worthy capable, or one to the task of preaching such an event? How does one unfold and display in awesome horror both the beauty and the evil that are present on such a day? Still knowing that without the ugliness, we cannot see the beauty. Without the incredible weight of darkness, we will not be able to grasp the radiance and the light. And along with that long line of preachers past, this one also knows that he can never do justice to such a story, to such a monumental event, to such titanic truths that dictate the eternal destiny of every man, woman, and child. So to that end, our second observation, beloved, I have nothing new to say. You will not hear anything novel or fresh I have no path to walk upon but that which has been trodden by thousands and thousands before me. It is the well-worn path of the greatest story ever told, and that is enough. We are content in that. Beloved, understand that most of the theological errors and heresies we see from both the pulpits and, and books, they come from, they are rooted in an insatiable desire to say something new. Look! I've discovered something no one else has. Well, I haven't. I haven't. There is no fresh take on the crucifixion of Christ. But we do pray that these ancient truths will be made ever new in our hearts this morning. While not fresh in revelation, that they will be fresh in application. That they would be renewed in beauty in our hearts. But today we look to the cross of Christ. We look to the very coronation of the Son of God as our substitute. 
the very hinge of human history. This is the very axis, the very center upon which the entire cosmos rotates around. On the surface, of course, we've watched in horror at the collusion of men, the conspiring to murder their maker. And yet in the same scripture, we behold that God himself is the ultimate executioner. That it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer, to make his life an offering for sin, as we read in Isaiah 53 this morning. Octavius Winslow, famous preacher, a contemporary actually of Spurgeon's and J.C. Riles, he famously asked, who killed Jesus? Who killed him? The answer, it wasn't Judas out of greed. It wasn't the Jews out of envy. It was the Father out of love. And beloved, we will spend an eternity wrapping our heads around that. Don't expect that to be settled here in the Sunday. But even as we have watched wicked men do what fallen hearts do, we're reminded that this is God's story. God is the main actor. Christ is the star. And as always, we will work methodically, and I pray faithfully through these difficult scenes, laboring only to focus on that which Scripture points to. We must be constrained and disciplined through texts like these. Love the temptation to branch off into a thousand different directions with such titanic truths that are blossoming in our face is tantalizing. But I promise we will labor to stay on the path. Understand that our objective over the next three weeks to look at first the crucifixion, next the actual death, and finally the burial of Jesus is not and cannot mine the depths of all that's contained here. Saints, we could stop here and never leave, right? <laughs> These are truths, as we said, that will take eternity to plumb the depths of. And in fact, is one of the things that we will do in eternity. And our objective over these next three messages is to show the awful beauty of Calvary. To not only understand what and how it happened, but even more, why it had to happen. What the crucifixion, the death and burial of Christ means for both the believer and the unbeliever alike. It is a message of hope, of joy, suffering, pain, warning. Every culmination of every human emotion, every culmination of every act of history comes to this point. It's what poet and later convert T.S. Eliot called, quote, the focal point of all time and space, one little lonely mountain called Golgotha. On that skull-shaped hill outside the city walls, the world would gather to hold court. Jews with their ancient creeds were there. Greeks with their talent for culture were there. Romans with their thirst for conquest, they were there. Indeed, the whole world, in a sense, was there, there to watch the creator of life die. And it will be here at the cross that we will be able to comprehend what Revelation calls the second death. As we go with them this morning through our text, as we witness the allowance of the greatest evil of all time, through it we might be inheritors of the greatest good of all time. So beloved, let us look to our text this morning now. 
Mark 15, 22 through 32. Mark 15, 22 through 32. Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide who should take what. Now it was the third hour and they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. And they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with, the transgress with transgressors. And those passing by were blaspheming him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the, destroy the sanctuary and rebuild it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, mocking him to one another, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Let us pray. Heavenly Fathers, we approach what are arguably the most difficult texts in Scripture. Lord, we are humbled, but Lord, never have we felt more dependent upon your Holy Spirit this morning. Lord, that we may know, that we may see it as we are to see it. Lord, I pray that this preacher would be faithful to the text. Lord, that we may know what is the height and the length and the depth and the width of the love of Christ, even as we watch it on display. Heavenly Father, we thank you for every soul that has walked through this door today. They are precious to us. They are precious to you. We ask, Lord, that you administer to each one in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, every story has a beginning. Sometimes it's hard to know just where that beginning is or where it was. And to be sure, our story was conceived before time in the mind of the Godhead, giving birth to creation. But God knew he was going to make man. So he planted a tree, the tree of life. That's not a figure of speech or an allegory, a real tree made of wood, representing to his most precious creation, man, the reality of eternal life. But God did not create robots or automatons. For love to be loved, there must be a choice to love. Love that is demanded or forced is no love at all. So God planted a tree, another tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Would we freely choose to obey out of love and relationship? Or would we choose to disobey? Eve made her choice. And Adam followed, and it all started with a tree. As we open with our text, let us first set our scene we've arrived upon as we look to verse 22. Verse 22, it reads, Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Well, a few messages ago, we 
began really the journey of the Via Dolorosa, didn't we? Meaning the way of sorrow, the way of suffering. The path that, of course, owing mostly to Catholic tradition, marks the steps through the old city of Jerusalem that Jesus made. From the place where he was condemned to the place where he would be buried. As you round station 12 of the Via Dolorosa, we come to the supposed place of Jesus' execution. Today that site is stewarded by the Greek Orthodox Church. It's known as the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And there you'll see an altar placed over the supposed spot, with lines of pilgrims getting down on their hands and knees to touch the hole in the rock where the cross was supposedly erected. Now there should be little surprise that there's great disagreement on this location, and today they really tend to fall down between Catholic and Protestant lines. The other competing theory is a location known as Gordon's Calvary. Gordon's Calvary was first proposed in the mid-19th century by Otto Thenius. He was a pastor, and others as well, but it was really thrust into the mainstream in the late 19th century by Charles Gordon. This is a location outside the city walls, just north of the Damascus Gate. It's now in a deeply Islamic part of Jerusalem, where the outcroppings of the stone there certainly make the shape of a skull. Now, it's suffered tremendous erosion over the years, and in fact, my Last time that I was over there for study, there was an ice storm that actually clipped off an arch of the nose, even further degrading those prominent features. But today, that hill, in poetic fashion, it has a Muslim cemetery built right atop of it, with a literal garbage dump and bus station below it. To be there certainly feels as though it's been intentionally desecrated. But beloved, while scholars and theologians and archaeologists argue about which spot is the true spot of Jesus' crucifixion, it often seems that the point is lost entirely. Even as God has been faithful to preserve his word for us from the beginning, if God wanted to, could he not have made sure, in whatever way he chose, to make sure that he preserved the location of this event? that we would know the exact location that this event occurred? A shining light from heaven down on the spot? Some other concrete evidence? Irrefutable? Could he have? Well, of course. But the point is, he didn't. The truth to be gleaned, the application to be gleaned from that fact that there are competing sites and we really don't know which one is correct with any certainty is precisely that. God has not kept or preserved that for us. Why? Because as John Calvin so famously said, our hearts are a factory of idols. Why did God take Moses' body? Why didn't he let the Israelites have a grave for Moses? What would they have done? They would have erected a monument. They would have built their civilization around that monument. They would have worshipped at that monument. They would have idolized that monument. In cosmic irony, the very one who brought down the tablets from the mountain saying you will not bow down to any graven image, if they would have possessed Moses' body and tomb, they would have done exactly that. Idol worship. Even today, at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre location, the traditional site for Golgotha, there is a stone there. And I stood there and watched 
as people bowed down and worshipped this stone and kissed it and cried upon it. Lines upon lines of people. There was nothing short of idol worship. In the very place Jesus was to have set us free from our idols. The truth to behold is not bound up in this location or in that location. That's not the point. The very point is that God has kept Moses' body, as it were, from us. Because our hearts are a factory of idols. You're to worship Christ, not a rock or a relic or a location. People will shower more love and devotion upon a dead rock than they will their living Savior. So, beloved, the truth and beauty of Golgotha's location is not in where it is. It's that we don't know where it is and what God is telling us through that truth. So, looking back to our text, Golgotha is a name that many of us know, right, from the Aramaic word Golgulta, meaning place of the skull. Others may be more familiar with the name Calvary from the Latin term Calvaria. This was really a place of public execution, Now, many had been killed at this location prior to Jesus, and in fact, many will be crucified afterwards. In fact, the later Jewish rebellion that, remember in AD 70, right, that burned Jerusalem to the ground, the Romans crucified so many they actually ran out of wood. So it's a process that the Romans had down to science. And now as Jesus has arrived on our divine timetable, with Simon of Cyrene having laid down his patabulum, the horizontal beam of Jesus' cross. We see now a Jewish custom of mercy that was actually performed before the crucifixion begins. Look with me to verse 23. We'll see this act. Verse 23. And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now, perhaps this seems like, well, an odd thing to offer at an execution, but it was actually really common practice. Most of our ladies in here, they know Proverbs 31 very well, right? But what some may not know is that there's a deep connection in it to Christ's crucifixion. In fact, a connection to anyone who's received capital punishment. Proverbs 31.6 reads, Give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to those whose soul is bitter. So there were those who were called honorable women of Jerusalem. That's what they named themselves. Who based on this proverb, it was their job to mix this cocktail, this narcotic drink to administer to those who were going to be crucified. Now, myrrh is a very primitive drug. It's it's basically a narcotic that's meant to, to dull the pain of crucifixion. Let us also not forget, as was the case with so much of Jesus' crucifixion, that this was offered to Jesus, that prophecy might be fulfilled as well. Right? The psalmist in Psalm 69, 21, he prophetically declares, They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Gall is another name for myrrh, which they tried to give Jesus beforehand. And of course, vinegar, the second part of that psalm, they would have given him on a reed and a sponge, just as he would die. All is done in accordance with Scripture. But again, it's not the what that captures our gaze here. Right? That Jesus was ref- would refuse to drink the wine and myrrh. Sorry, Baptist, Jesus is not making a statement on alcohol. 
It's not the what, but it's the why. We are continually reminded that Jesus stood as our substitute. And understanding that if he is to be our true substitute in every facet, in every form, in every way to complete satisfaction, nothing can stand between Jesus and the full wrath and pain that was about to be poured out. Nothing. He will feel every nail as it rips and tears. There will be no relief as the one to absorb the wrath for sin, to pay the debt we owed, just as there will be no relief in eternity for those who will have to pay their own debt for sin because they know not Christ, because they have no payment for their sin. So Christ will seek no relief from the pain to be poured out. He is our substitute. Beloved, grab hold of that and never let go. Bask in the glory and the joy and the thankfulness of that. When you see Jesus being offered myrrh and he turns his face away and says, no, there's our substitute. All the way, no relief, no shortcuts. That is perfect satisfaction made on our behalf. He drank the cup of wrath, not with a drop left in the cup, but poured out in fullness, in completeness and perfection. Praise the Lord that he turned his face and would not drink the myrrh. And finally, very anticlimactically, looking back to our text, verses 24 and 25, we can put those together. Verses 24 and 25, and they crucified him now pause there for a moment here it is as we've mentioned before the physical act is not the focus of the gospel writers is it this is all we get and they crucified him when he was scourged what did mark write and they scourged him that's all And while we are coming upon six verses or more detailing the mocking of Jesus, the the jeering and the scorn heaped on Jesus for the actual act of crucifixion, here it is. And we will not belabor this. I know many preachers do. I know it can pull on the emotions and heartstrings to dive into the gruesome details of what Jesus went through in our redemption. But beloved, a true in-depth dissertation on crucifixion, trust that it's more than one's heart can bear. However, there are misconceptions about the act of crucifixion that we don't want anyone to labor under. Common myths that are perpetuated by art or Hollywood. It was not a quick death. It was designed to be prolonged and slow. In fact, so slow, that's why so many were often scourged beforehand to speed up that process. It could be well said that the purpose of the cross and its application was torture. Death was just a byproduct of such agony. Now, often in depictions of this scene or in pictures of Jesus displaying the marks of his crucifixion, they show the wounds in his hands. Of course, you're probably aware that that's not where these six-inch spikes were driven. They were driven into the wrists to support the full weight of the condemned as they would begin to slump over. The feet of Jesus would have been put on a small step-looking block, perhaps more like a peg. 
and his legs would be bent to around a 45-degree angle, and his feet would be layered one over the other and impaled with a single spike into the block. The purpose for the legs being bent as they were had to do with the manner of death that awaited Jesus. The spikes impaled into the wrists and the feet were not meant to kill the condemned. They were simply there to hold the body up in place. The cause of death from crucifixion was slow suffocation. The legs were bent so that Jesus could push himself up, opening his diaphragm to breathe. And as he would do so, of course, his tattered back would scrape against the rough wood of the cross every time he wished to breathe. At the beginning, while they still have strength, it's kind of a choice. Whether or not to forego a breath to save the searing pain from pushing up the vertical beam and the weight of pulling himself up by the spikes in his wrists. But eventually, strength begins to give out. Muscles will seize. Being unable to breathe, carbon dioxide builds up in the blood. And Jesus would suffocate as our substitute. The psalmist speaks of this sensation long before crucifixion was ever known about. Psalm 22 declaring, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. That's the sensation of suffocation. Scripture goes on, my strength is dried up like potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. Listen, beloved, to this. Written 1,000 B.C., 1,000 years before crucifixion was known or even widely used. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. All was prophesied. Isaiah 53.5, Zechariah 12.10 reads of looking upon him whom they have pierced. Most of the time, the soldiers would come by, of course, and break the legs of the condemned. Unable to push themselves up anymore, that would hasten the suffocation. You'll recall that didn't happen to Jesus. Why? Because it is written. John tells us in his gospel, John 19, 36, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Quoting, of course, there, both Exodus 12, 46 and Numbers 9, 12, declaring that none of the bones of the Passover lamb were to be broken. That's Jesus, our Passover lamb. As God the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And just as if the narrative of our Lord's crucifixion is Moving right along with the psalmist in Psalm 22, the next verses from the psalmist read what? I can count on my bones. They stare and gloat over me. We're about to see that in our text certainly as well. What then from the psalmist though? Psalm 22:18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Look back to our text today. What do we see now happening? Last part of verse 24. And divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide who should take what. Now, it should be mentioned as well that 
Though Hollywood and art usually depict a loincloth around Jesus on the cross, there is no evidence from history or antiquity that any loincloth was allowed. And when we consider that the driving force behind crucifixion being that of humiliation, it is likely that Jesus was completely exposed upon that cross. Of course, the parallels of Jesus' nakedness on our account are one that we could sit and ponder together for the rest of the day. Spurgeon opines on this saying, quote, He who gave his blood to cleanse us gave us his garments to clothe us. John's account as well gives us a bit more detail as to why they cast lots. There John describes Jesus' clothing, specifically his outside tunic or his robe. Listen to this. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, a part to each soldier and also his tunic. Now what tunic? Now that tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. What do we glean from this? Was it simply that Jesus had a very nice outer robe? Well, it was. But beloved, it's so much more than that. A single-piece tunic had a very specific usage and provenance. If we look to Josephus and his works titled Antiquities of the Jews, he writes the following when speaking of the clothes of the temple high priest. Quote, this clothing was not made by pieces of cloth sewn together or even two large pieces. It was instead one long vestment that was parted along the breast and the back, seamless. I had to confess, I have to confess, I had to stop when I read that. Who wore a seamless single piece robe? In Jerusalem, it was the high priest. Someone of great means, a convert will never know. They knew who Jesus was. And they gave Jesus a garment fit for his title. The true, the great high priest of Israel. I can't imagine they like seeing Jesus in such a robe during his three religious trials. He's got on a seamless one-piece tunic. Who do you think you are? Someone knew who he was. And he gave him the garment to express that. Beloved, how much beauty is there amidst the darkness of this text? Look with me now to verse 25. Verse 25. Now it was the third hour and they crucified him. The third hour, that's 9 a.m., now, those of you who know the math, who are doing the quick math, you know as Jesus would take his last breath at 3 p.m. The moment that all the lambs around Jerusalem were slaughtered for Passover. That's when our Passover lamb would breathe his last as well. So that gives us about six hours for the events on the cross to transpire. That's six hours in this condition. That's truly unthinkable. Look with me as we move along. We're reminded of Pontius Pilate here as we look to verse 26 now. Verse 26. 
And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Now we know from John's account that the full sign read, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And it was written in Greek, it was written in Hebrew and Aramaic, meaning anyone who was walking by could read it. And remember that this wasn't meant as a jab at Jesus, as is so often thought. Remember, Pilate wrote this. And he wrote it as a jab against the high priests. Remember, they didn't want Pilate to write that, John 19, 21. But Pilate's like, no, (laughs) I like it just fine. What I have written, I have written. If you're going to go blackmail me, I'm going to write your accusation on here loud and proud. And of course, census plenier, he is the king of the Jews. He is the great high priest whose robe you would not tear. He is. Our picture grows now as we see that Jesus is not crucified alone. Look with me now to verses 27 and 28. 27 and 28, beloved, I'll read them as one. And they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with transgressors. Now, Jesus being crucified between two criminals was yet again an act by Pilate to dig at the chief priests. Here's your king, a criminal, just like the insurrectionists that we have him hanging with. Remember that these three crosses were likely erected for the insurrection that just happened with Barabbas at the head. This tall cross in the middle was very likely meant for Barabbas. And the right and the left would have been his accomplices. accomplices. So these weren't just robbers, right? Robbing didn't warrant crucifixion. They were murderers. Death happened in this insurrection. Now I know that we want to see, that we see quite an exchange happen with one of these robbers in other Gospels, mainly in Luke's. Known, of course, as the thief on the cross. Now, this was one I struggled with a bit. We do sometimes grab scenes from other Gospels to round out timelines, etc. But we want to stick with authorial intent. And the truth is that Mark does not include this exchange with the robbers. So I'm not going to go into it in detail. However, I will take one very quick segue to remind us of the theological truths that we glean from the thief who turned to Christ in repentance and faith on the cross. One, it's never too late to come to Christ. Never. And two, it doesn't matter how steep the sin you may come to Christ. The thief had no works to offer in exchange. It was by grace that day he was saved. And that day he was with Christ in paradise. Now some of you may notice verse 28 has brackets around it. Some of your translations, actually, if you look down at your Bibles, may not even include that verse at all. Some of your Bibles may go right from verse 27 to 29. There's very good reason for this. Some of the earliest Alexandrian manuscripts, they don't include this verse. This is very likely what's called a scribal assimilation from Luke 22, 37. We've got a few examples of this in Scripture, and in fact, a, a huge one coming up at the end of Mark's Gospel. But suffice to say, because it is bracketed, we won't be expositing this scripture, but know that it is completely accurate. 
Jesus being crucified between two thieves is a direct fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 12. That Messiah will be numbered with the transgressors. Yes and amen. One more example of over 400 direct fulfillments of prophecy in the coming, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ from the Old Testament. Glory to God. As we've mentioned at the outset, the the physical horrors of crucifixion is not the focus of the authors. The focus is what we come upon now in our text. The final four verses are a shocking and saddening compilation of blasphemy and scorn, of contempt and disdain, of harassment, of gloating, of sarcasm, jeering and mocking and insult, all that Christ would endure on our behalf. Look with me as the psalmist says, the dogs surround our Lord on the cross. Where a company of evildoers, the psalmist says, encircles him and they gloat over him. So let us look at the first wave of this in verse 29 and 30. Verse 29 and 30, I'll read them as one. And those passing by were blaspheming him, shaking their heads and saying, ha. You who are going to destroy the sanctuary and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself by coming down from the cross. Beloved, we need to first understand that this blasphemy, this scorn, was not only prophesied, but their blasphemy was recorded verbatim before it ever happened. Psalm 22, 7 and 8. All who see me mock me. They Make mouths at me. They wag their heads. They shake their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Forgive these people, Father. They have no idea what they're saying. When people laugh at you for your faith, when they say, ha, (laughs) we are no better than our master, If they mocked him, they will mock you. And did they even mock based on the truth? That would at least make it palatable, right? Hey, at least if I'm going to be the butt of all the jokes, at least if I'm going to be the object of scorn and derision, at least let it be for the truth. It won't be. It wasn't for Jesus. You who are going to destroy the sanctuary, destroy the temple, and rebuild it in three days, did they understand Jesus' words then? course not they don't know christ nor his word now beloved i pray that suffering or persecution not come to your doorstep but if it does know and understand that it will not be noble it will be humiliating and based on lies they will lie about you to justify their horrific treatment of you It will never be for standing on truth. They'll call you a danger to society, a threat to the rule of law, a criminal of the worst kind, on and on. Exactly what they did to Jesus. Now, this encouragement might not be for anyone in here this morning. It may not be for anyone listening online, but these words are archived. (laughs) Even if it be a hundred years into the future, take heart. If you are to join your Savior in his sufferings, 
Even if it be drowned in lies and half-truths and accusations, this is exactly how they crucified your Lord. It was not noble. It was as humiliating as can be. He was naked upon a cross. So take heart. Look at the ignorant blaspheming of verse 30 in our text. Save yourself by coming down from the cross. Stop there. Full stop. Now, first of all, let's just apply the truth of Scripture to that blasphemy, right? What does Jesus say in Matthew 26, 53? You think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at one, not at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Let's get out your calculator. Guess how many 12 legions is? 72,000 angels. How strong is just one angel? Well, Isaiah 37, 36 tells us that a single angel, one, obliterated 185,000 men in one night. 72,000, more than. Oh, back of the napkin math here, using some constant numbers. Yeah, those angels could take out a little over 13 billion people. That's the entire population of today's world, almost two times over. Save yourself. Save yourself. <laughs> but beloved, while all the headwagging that we see throughout the crucifixion scene is, is horrendous and the ignorance and the half-truths and the blasphemy, two taunts stand unique. They stand unique. And we see it here first in verse 30. And we're going to see it repeated in verse 32 as well. In fact, let's go ahead and do that. Let's show verses 31 and 32 as one. Verses 31 and 32. Now, slightly out of order here, but what did we see back in verse 30? Save yourself by coming down from the cross. Now, what do we see looking down to verse 32 again? Now, come down from the cross. Regulars at Harrison Hills, why are our ears perking up here? What makes this taunt different than every other head-wagging insult we've seen? This taunt is the drumbeat of hell, isn't it? We've taught on this before. But what has been the drumbeat of hell ever since a babe was born in the manger? What is the pulse of hell? Stop the cross. By all means, by any measure, stop the cross. Herod to kill the babies when Jesus was born. Why? Stop the cross. The entire thrust of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness by Satan. What was the entire line of, of temptation aimed at? Aimed toward? Stop the cross. Right? Pick up the rights, Jesus, that are truly yours as king. Take up the worship that's yours as the son of God. You're entitled to all this. Not hunger and want. You're God's son. Take up your privilege now. Go around the cross. Stop the cross. The weight of Gethsemane. Stop the cross. That has always been the plan. If Christ comes off that cross, you and I are lost. And he could have any time. This taunt to come down off the cross are the most demonically inspired words we see. Now, of course, owed to Hollywood and bad theology, people think that the demons were rejoicing 
when the spikes were driven through Jesus? Well, they're not reading their Bibles. The sound of the hammer hitting those spikes was the sounding of a five-alarm fire in hell. It's the sound of their doom. This is the last gasp of an enemy trying to stop God's plan to save his people. Come down off the cross if you can. And have a close look, beloved, at who it is echoing the cry of hell as Jesus hangs. In the same way, mocking him to one another, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Beloved, understand that Satan is not opposed to religion. He inhabits it, runs in its circles, co-ops it. Sometimes he attacks it from the outside, but most often he infects and destroys it from the inside. Through discouragement, through doubt, through deceit and division, his focus, Satan's focus is on Christ and his people. Not those who are already living in sin. His work is done there. It was those who wore the single piece robe that day, the chief priests and the scribes, standing below the cross, who revealed what Jesus had already declared to them all along, that they are of their father, the devil. And of course, such narratives of the passion would not be complete unless census plenier makes an appearance. For you visitors, sorry, we don't have time to explain that. But what do we see from the hounds of hell gathered below the cross? Census plenier. Verse 31. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Well, once again, a devil speaks truth. He saved others. You bet he did. He threw a life preserver to thousands more who chose to drown instead. He cannot save himself. That's correct, except for one word. It isn't cannot, it's will not. No one has taken my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. He gave his life a ransom for many. He laid down his life for the sheep. 72,000 plus angels stand ready at a moment's notice to turn every one of these blasphemers into ash. Our Savior, he has the presence of mind and of heart to pray for them, to intercede for them. Father, forgive them. Even as his heart is slowing and nearing collapse, we hear the voice of the shepherd from that cross. Even then, let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Beloved, would they have believed? Had an angel in white, dazzling clothes descended to that cross, pulled the spikes out, and Jesus stands there on that hill, knew as the day he was born, would they have believed? Not a chance. They would have explained it away. 
even having performed the messianic miracles for all to see. Every other miracle, innumerable numbers of them. They investigated them. They saw them. They knew them. And yet they mock. If you're waiting on a sign, if you're waiting on a lightning bolt from heaven to heed the divine words, what more sign will be given than you sitting right here today? Than you listening online? That's your miracle. That's your call. Salvation is the greatest miracle of all time. And if he's drawing you, that is enough to come in repentance and faith. Then Yahweh formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And so the man became a living being. And Yahweh planted a garden in Eden toward the east. And there he placed the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, Yahweh caused to grow every tree that is desirable in appearance and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God planted a tree. One to give eternal life and the other to choose death. And we chose death. So God planted a tree, another tree. And that tree would grow. It would be harvested. It would be cut down. And it would be shaped into a cross. People ask what happened to the tree of life. It's right here. And so it is. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have seen this day from the foundation of the world. Lord, we thank you that you know each soul that has walked through here. The hairs on their head are numbered. Lord, we thank you that even from Genesis 2, that you planted a tree. That you planted the tree of life. That you've placed before us life and death. And today through the cross you command us to choose life. Heavenly Father we ask that as you work on each of the hearts that are present here. That today is the acceptable day of salvation. Lord that your sheep would hear the voice of the shepherd. That it would calm their anxious hearts. That it would strengthen and buttress them as they've never known. Lord, these are texts too great for us, but by your mercy, allow us to see them. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.